This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. With world leaders gathered in Glasgow for the UN Climate Change Summit, and with lawmakers in Washington trying to hammer out legislation on climate action, we're once again reminded of the urgency of eliminating the use of fossil fuels and curtailing emissions, and the challenges of doing so. But why is it that the most basic facts of climate science still aren't being taught in classrooms? That's the question Katie Worth asks in her new book, Miseducation, How Climate Change is Taught in America. She's here today to speak with Assistant Managing Editor Issa Simon, and their conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Issa. Good to see you today. Hi, Dominic. So tell us a little bit about your conversation with Katie Worth. Well, so Katie Worth is an investigative journalist who writes specifically about the intersection of science and politics. Um, And so when she was researching this book, she was looking at education. And as the title, Miseducation, implies, she encountered a lot in classrooms across the country where climate change, which is a fact as irrefutable as any that we learn in science class, is often taught as though it's a debated question among experts, or else it's virtually ignored in school curricula altogether. So she was trying to understand why this is the case, and she found evidence of funding from the fossil fuel industry, of conservative state legislatures who influence educational standards and the language used in textbooks, and of a deep partisan bias that affects teachers themselves. We talked about all these issues and others in the interview, and then we talked about what the features of a good climate education might be, the way it could be introduced even in communities that have been hostile to the science on climate change, or the ways it might engender action from these young people who will grow up to be voters and policymakers themselves. Okay, thanks. Well, why don't we take a listen? Hi, Katie. Thanks for being here. Uh, It's my pleasure. I'm really glad to be here. So in reading your book, the big theme that emerges is about how climate change is taught or frequently not taught in schools in the U.S. What motivated you to choose this topic for your research? And what, if anything, surprised you about what you uncovered? So I worked as a reporter for Frontline PBS, and we went to the Marshall Islands and talked to a million kids there. And we were just stunned by how fluently so many of them could talk about climate change in a way that is not common among kids or adults in this country. Some of the kids had learned about it every single year in school since they were like six. And the adults in their lives talked about it. And that's because the Marshall Islands is a low-lying atoll in the middle of the Pacific. The average elevation, I think, is about 10 feet. So, you know, sea level rise is a real threat. They have other climate threats, and they're one of the nations whose very existence is threatened by climate change. One of the kids that we met was this nine-year-old named Iserman, and his family was considering moving to Oklahoma because they had some extended family there. And one of the reasons was because they wanted their kids to possibly have a better education. So that immediately brought up the question, well, what would they learn? if they went to Oklahoma about climate change. And I did wind up going to Oklahoma among many other places in the country. And at that time, I actually went to a high school in the town that his family was considering moving to. And of the five or six kids that I spoke to, only one had ever had a teacher bring up climate change 
that kind of gives you an idea of how absent climate change is in, in some places. And then in other places, there's a real robust education. And my research was about like, wh- what causes that? Why is that happening? And doesn't matter. You actually grew up near the town that burned down in the giant paradise wildfire. Can you talk about your personal connection? Yeah, so I grew up in a town called Chico. It's in the same county as Paradise, which burned down in 2018. 90% of the buildings burned in that fire in that town. And 87 people, I think, perished in the flame. And then everyone in Paradise evacuated that day to Chico. And many of them have stayed, which has changed my hometown forever. And I was reporting the story when it happened. And of course, I was like, well, what are kids there learning about climate change? And so I wound up reaching out to the teachers at Paradise Intermediate School, which had been displaced by the fire. And they they landed in the only real estate available to them, which was a shuttered big box hardware store. And they created classrooms in the aisles and they played tag in the garden center and like they ate lunch off of the checkout counters. It was all very surreal. But I spent a week or two in their seventh grade science class while their teacher was teaching about teaching a unit on climate change to this group of kids who 100 percent of them were had been burnt out of their homes and were arguably climate refugees. One of the interesting things is that Paradise is actually politically fairly red. And so a lot of the kids, if they'd heard anything about climate change, they'd heard that it was a hoax. And this teacher was trying to introduce them to this idea and to the data and was fielding questions like, well, my mom said that this, that it's not real and that it snowed last year a lot. So what's, how can you say that the climate is changing? And like, we need carbon dioxide in the air. So what's the problem with a little more? Like they were parroting what they had learned at home. So scientists can't pin any given disaster on climate change, but we know that climate change had its fingerprints all over the fire because the five hottest summers in history, it all happened the five years before it hadn't rained. I think they'd gotten 0.88 inches of rain in six months. You can basically say that These fires that are happening all the time now in California, they're directly related to climate change. And these kids were the victims of one of those. And it was just gutting to see them not just not recognize that, but reject the very idea of this phenomenon that had already transformed their lives. Miseducation includes a map of the United States in which every state is graded on its climate education from A to F and labeled with its partisan affiliation. And that partisan affiliation is, perhaps unsurprisingly, correlated with the robustness of the education. So we have what you call in the book a two-tiered system, where no Democratic states earn lower than a B-, while 19 Republican states earn a C or below. Can you talk about the effect of partisanship? Yeah, absolutely. Every state has academic standards, which are every time I mention them, people's eyes glaze over. But they're actually really interesting because they basically list out everything a kid should know and be able to do at the end of any given grade or class. And so it's the state's education is so localized. So it's really dependent on like your school district. And this is 
the state's main lever of control over what a kid is going to learn in their state. So the deal with these academic standards is that they have to be updated every five to 10 years. And that process is that usually that there's like a panel of educators in a given subject. So in this case, science educators who look at the old standards, figure out what's working, what's not, think about what they should say if they need to be updated and so on. And then that goes to the state legislature for a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So the state legislature has this real direct control over their standards. So then that leads to sometimes there's conflict. So almost invariably, the panels of educators, of science educators are saying, yeah, climate change should be part of a science education. It's the biggest scientific issue of our era, right? And kids have a right to know about it, should know about it. We need them to know about it and because they were born into this century that's going to be defined by this phenomenon. And then it gets to the state legislatures and the partisanship then trickles down. For example, in Idaho, the panel sent this set of standards to the legislature who rejected it because it had climate change in it. They did it the next year. The panel would not back down. They sent the same set of standards and the legislature approved all of them except the five that included climate change standards. And then I think it took three years to even get approved. And then I think there's still efforts now to repeal those climate change standards in Idaho. So that's just an example of how a state's political affiliation and orientation can wind up affecting what kids learn in class. And so that grading system is something is it was a study that it was the National Center for Science Education and the Texas Freedom Network did. And they had experts look at every state's standards and basically rank them and rate them. And as you said, every blue state and blue meaning that they have they have a democratic controlled legislature, they all got B pluses or better. The red states were all over the board. There were a few that were actually quite good, but the vast majority of them got much, got below a B plus, got, and many of them, several of them got Fs. One of the other places where this divide is evident or where it has consequences is in the language used in textbooks. So what did you discover about the ways publishers market books in different states and how one state's standards can affect what gets put in the textbook that's sold across the country? Yeah, it's so interesting because Texas has this really outsized impact on what is in textbooks all over the country. So some states approve textbooks like statewide, and then other states just leave it to the districts and the and the schools to decide what textbook they want, right? And Texas is one of the states that approves it statewide, and they go over those textbooks with a fine-tooth comb and with a, a political eye. And Texas, back in the 20s, banned the mention of, human evolution in their textbooks. And and that was a big battle. And then the textbook makers are not making just a special Texas textbook. Sometimes they are. But, you know, they then kind of put that same language in textbooks that are sold to schools and school districts around the country. 
My team reviewed dozens of textbooks, read through all these middle school textbooks, because that's usually the place that climate change first shows up. And what we found was there's a remarkable amount of climate denialism. There's a lot of sentences that are like, many scientists believe that climate change is being caused by humans, but some scientists believe that it's natural, which is like a patently false statement. It's just not true, right? That's false. And, and it was false even when the words were written 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But they're doing that because they want to make it through this kind of arduous textbook approval process in Texas. And so they're like mentioning climate change, but they're being pretty cagey about it because they don't want to piss anybody off. And that's exactly how they treated evolution for a very long time. Evolution is the organizing principle of biology, right? And it was hardly mentioned in biology textbooks for decades. And only recently is it really robustly discussed. And that was the same phenomenon. These textbook makers who, they're business people, they have to sell books. And so they just pay attention to the political winds and preemptively, most of the time, censor themselves. We'll have more of Issa's conversation with Katie Worth in a minute. But first, if you like what you're hearing, I'd like to encourage you to rate and review the Commonweal Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. And please, if you have friends who like podcasts, tell them about us. Your reviews help us bring these conversations to new listeners. And if you haven't already, consider making a one-time or recurring donation. Your support helps make this work possible. Just see our donate link on the Commonweal website. So as a result of this, what we get is these textbooks that are teaching, quote, all sides that are teaching climate change as a debate. Can you talk about why the framing of climate change as a debate, which might seem innocuous, is actually so dangerous? Yeah, it's a good question because like debate is actually good pedagogy. You know, like when you get kids talking and debating about something, they're like thinking critically about it and they're paying attention. And so teachers often try and incorporate debate in classes. You know, there's harm done when you're asking kids to debate something that's not actually debated. It also misleads kids to think that everything is debatable. And like in science, sure, scientific findings are turned over all the time. But when a finding is replicated hundreds of times, thousands of times, tens of thousands of times, and there's no other studies showing something else, it takes on the status of a fact. The evidence for climate change actually dates back to the beginning of the 20th century. Actually, even in the 19th century, it was being theorized about, you know, scientists in the 40s and 50s were really starting to pay attention to it to the point where they, there was enough worry about the potential of climate change based on how many pollutants that we were putting into the atmosphere that warm the atmosphere, right? This is not, it's not complicated science. Like we know that carbon dioxide and methane trap heat on earth. So what happens when you add a whole bunch more of those ingredients? It warms the earth, right? And that's what we're doing. 
pretty early on, people realized that there could be some pretty drastic effects. And in fact, fossil fuel companies were among the people to first realize it and to do, they did a ton of research about it in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And in 1965, the scientific community was worried enough about climate change that they created a report to brief President Lyndon B. Johnson about it. And they stated that fossil fuels, quote, may be sufficient to produce measurable and perhaps marked changes in the climate by the year 2000, which turned out to be true, right? So like this there hasn't actually ever been real scientific debate over why it's happening, whether it's going to happen. There's been some debate over what the effects are going to be. And then there's certainly been lots of debate about what to do about it, if anything. Right. And that is, you know, reasonable people can come to different conclusions about that. But reasonable people can't look at the evidence and come to different conclusions about the fact that it's happening and why it's happening. There is no evidence to support that solar cycles are involved or gravitational waves, something I've heard. You know, there's a lot of this kind of pseudoscience out there, but there's no alternate theory that has any real evidence for it. The trouble is, you know, once you accept these facts, it requires this overhaul basically of a, a pillar of our economy, which for the last century has been fossil fuels, a couple centuries now, if you include coal. This is, of course, of great concern to the people who work in that industry and make their money in that industry. And so somewhere in the 1980s, the fossil fuel industry went from being concerned about this and doing a bunch of research about it to being in defensive mode. They went from being kind of participants in the research to this. They laid off all their scientists and they invested in a whole bunch of communications people by the end of the 80s. And so those communications people, they picked up some tricks from another earlier debate, which was big tobacco, which also had a situation where the scientific consensus was coming to the conclusion that smoking and secondhand smoke were linked with cancer. And it was more and more undeniable. And instead of changing, they chose to try and invest in the communications campaign to deny it. So what did the anti-climate science movement learn from Big Tobacco? And who were some of the major players that actually crossed over in both fields? So there is a really incredible book called The Merchants of Doubt by Naomi Oreskes and Eric M. Conway that details this. And we know a lot about what happened, actually, because Big Tobacco was sued and had to turn over all of their documents. So we basically know exactly how they thought about communicating to the public about the dangers of their merchandise. They came up with this idea that if you can get the public to doubt, even if it's just like a little bit, not the whole public, but 20 percent of the public, if you can get some portion of the public to doubt the science and doubt whether they will actually get cancer, that inoculates against actual change because the 
status quo is heavy. The inertia kind of is heavy enough and that people don't want to give up smoking. Of course they don't. And people don't want to think that it's going to make them sick. And if there's not incontrovertible proof, if there's some question around it, then they can justify it to themselves and regulators can justify not regulating it and so on. So the tobacco companies hired scientists who went on TV and produced reports that said, yeah, actually, we're just still figuring it out. We don't really know. It might be causing cancer, but there's also lots of other factors. And sometimes people smoke all their lives and they don't get cancer. So there's like kind of stirring up these doubts. And that worked for a long time. It probably delayed regulation of tobacco products by decades. And in the meantime, the tobacco industry made lots of money. So when the fossil fuel industry was starting to think about communications with the public, they actually hired the exact same people that were working for big tobacco. So there's like most scientists aren't going to go against the majority of people in their field, but there's some that will. And so there were a couple of big figures. One was Frederick Seitz. Another was Fred Singer, who both had real good credentials. Seats had helped develop the nuclear bomb. Singer had helped uh, invent satellites. And so they were well-known and well-respected in their fields. But then they started working for corporate interests and they, you know, not only spoke out against tobacco regulation, but also they questioned the science linking asbestos and health and like CFCs and the the hole in ozone, you know, nuclear winter theory, like they were the people who were out there questioning the science. And so then, of course, once climate change came up, they started questioning the science of climate change and they were relentless. They were on TV all the time. They were writing op-eds. They were getting published in op-eds. And they were criticizing reporters who didn't include, quote, both sides of the issue. And media just completely lapped it up. And the media just did provide, quote, both sides of the issue of an issue that didn't have two sides for many decades and surely slowed action on the issue by doing so. How did that doubt campaign affect education? Well, there's a couple of threads that are worth mentioning. So we know this because of a a leaked memo from a meeting that happened in 1998. It was a meeting that was hosted by the American Petroleum Institute and attended by Exxon and several other members of the, you know, coal industry, oil and gas industry, and some think tanks, some conservative think tanks were there and they created a communications plan. They were going to hire more scientists. They were going to plaster the media and politicians with the fossil fuels industry's message on climate change because they were worried at that time. They were worried about the Kyoto Protocol being put into place and then limiting and like regulating carbon effectively. In that memo, there's specifically some tactics listed to get into classrooms. And it specifically says that the purpose of this is to, quote, begin to erect a barrier against further efforts to impose Kyoto-like measures in the future. So they really laid it out like they were really trying to fight against regulation with this. And they did. They carried it out. They like partnered with the National Science Teachers Association to create 
curriculum that wound up in classrooms that was very much pro-fossil fuels. And we know there they funded books and lesson plans and an ad campaign, some of which did explicitly deny climate change. Mostly it was more subtle than that. And that actually continues to this day. Like I was in a classroom in Arkansas and in walked a lobbyist working for the Arkansas oil and gas industry organization. And she was there to give a presentation to the seventh graders about Arkansas's oil industry. And some of it was legit, like this is the geology, this is where, this is the technology, things that kids should know. But then there was a whole portion on telling kids that they didn't need to worry about climate change because every source of fuel has problems. Windmills kill birds, for example, and solar panels are made from minerals that are problematic. And, you know, sure, fossil fuels create carbon, but, you know, also like America isn't the main source of carbon in the atmosphere anyway. It's mostly these other countries that are the problem. And so it's just not something that you need to really stress about. It was the message. I witnessed that in 2019. This isn't like some ancient history. So there's still these efforts to get kids on the side of the fossil fuel industry to, as the memo says, to erect a barrier against future regulatory efforts. This campaign has been so effective with adults that it seeps into education in a much more natural way, you know, because Teachers are people. They're all across the political spectrum. And a lot of them didn't learn hardly anything about climate change in their own education. And so they're going to present it as a debate if that's what they if they don't know better, basically, if they if that's what their political belief tells them is that it's still debatable. And, you know, these kids are hearing it from their parents. And so it's an adult problem, but it like by osmosis gets into the classroom, even if it's not like a direct campaign to get there. But not every classroom is this way. And so I'm going to pivot a little to talk about some of the more hopeful aspects of the story. You observed dozens of teachers in classrooms around the country. So what were some of the great examples about what victory in the battle for accurate climate education looks like? Yeah, there are just intrepid teachers in every, I would say, every community in America that are taking this on and that are giving kids an education, a a real education, robust education about climate change and climate science and the climate crisis that they will expect, they can expect to face in their adulthood. And it's just really magical to watch a really skilled teacher talk about this because it's actually, it's the science is very interesting. I've seen teachers give kids the chart of carbon levels in the atmosphere and then have them look up their city's historic temperature, average temperatures, and then look up the average temperatures of like where their grandmother lives and all the cities that they care about in the world. And, you know, and to see, are they trending up? Are they trending flat? Are they trending down? And almost always they're trending up. And so then the kids kind of start putting it together themselves. They learn what the greenhouse effect is that, you know, some gases can warm up the planet and they can 
come to some conclusions about cause and effect and and discover it themselves and come to those conclusions themselves like scientists have. And that is really powerful because providing kids with the direct data about it can help them seed some protection against other messages that they might get. So even if they are hearing in other parts of their lives that in, from their parents, from their churches, from other adults, that climate change is a hoax, say, like there's still a seed planted like, oh, but there's actual data. And if we just, I'm just going to give you the evidence, you get to decide, you get to think for yourself on this issue. You look at the evidence and see what you think. Maybe the kid doesn't walk out that day believing in it, but it's enough of those kinds of messages add up to help them find the truth. Once they've got the truth, hopefully, there still remains one subject that is a debate, which is to what extent should the goal of our climate education be action? Can you talk about how people are concerned about turning classrooms into a political space, but how, as you put it in the book, that assumes schools are a politically neutral ground to begin with? Yeah, there's kind of a debate in education about what should education do? You know, what are we trying to create citizens who then take action on issues? Are we just trying to give kids information and like not spur them towards, inspire them to action? So there's a lot of people who push back on the idea that classrooms are neutral to begin with. And then there's also people who say teaching climate science is neutral. The science, the evidence, you're looking at the evidence. What does the evidence say? And to impose, to say that it's a debate, that's where the politics come in. It's not the science, it's the debate. And there are things that you can debate. You can debate, should we do anything at all about this? What should we do? How much should we overhaul our society? What should we do when we start seeing these major changes and people are displaced and so on? Those are things that adults debate and are legitimate and bringing them into a classroom is reasonable. And especially if your goal with education is to create future citizens who are participating in civic discourse and participating in society and tackling society's problems and and changing it. And if that's like a goal that you have for a good public education, then climate change should absolutely be not just in science class but in civics classes and history classes, some schools have it in math class. You know, there's ways to incorporate the issue across all subjects. I think you can just ask, what would a good education in climate change look like? Somebody put it in eight words, and I love it. Kids should know by the end of their education about climate change that it's real, it's us, it's bad, and there's hope, right? If they leave their public education basically under fundamentally understanding those four things, they will be ahead of most of the American population. And that last part, there's hope, is really essential. And Frank Neopold, who is the climate education czar for NOAA in the federal government, he put it to me like, you know, kids know that there's a problem. And often when climate change is taught, it's presented as 99% problem and 1% solution. But kids don't want that. Kids want 20% problem and 80% solution. And not only is that better received by the kids, but also they 
are going to become adults and decision makers, and we need their brains working on how do we fix this huge problem. And so getting them started thinking on that not only alleviates the despair that they might otherwise feel about this situation that many of us feel, but helps them roll up their sleeves and get to work. Well, Katie, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about your book, Miseducation. It was really illuminating to read and very clearly written. And I'm really glad we got to talk to you more about it. Well, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to be here. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Katie Worth's book is Miseducation, How Climate Change is Taught in America. It's from Columbia Global Reports, and it's out on November 16th. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>